welcome to Home Space and Reason, a podcast about creating a home that thrives. Hi there, I'm Christina Browning, your host. If you know your home could be so much more than it is, I discuss home functionality, aesthetics, and automation. I'm a realtor and home functionality coach, and I geek out on every subject imaginable regarding your home and yard, challenging you to think of your space differently to get the most out of every square foot, no matter if you reside in 4,500 square feet or 350. I post questions for you to think through about your space and your reason. This podcast is all positive, offering you virtual fist bumps and celebrating every win. Remember, there's no such thing as perfect, but you can still aim for your best every day. Episode 64. This is a two-part series discussing wildfire risk in our homes and our safety. As I edit this episode, there are currently more than 70 fires raging in 12 states. This episode is relevant to every single homeowner, forested or suburban, on a large lot or small. No one is immune to fire amidst global warming and its onslaught of drought combined with high winds. The thing that is changing in our world that is so noticeable is the amount of land that is burning every year and fire knows no boundaries. You no longer can feel safe just because you live in a highly populated area free from dense trees. Fire travels via embers and wild wind and it can go fast. Anywhere you see leaves or debris gathering after winds, is where those embers will go because they too are carried by wind. Today, I want to introduce you to a special guest, Jim Brashears. He spent his career as a firefighter in the Paradise, California area and rose through the ranks to fire chief. He was part of the devastating Paradise fire that happened just a few years back. Tell us more about your history, Jim. I had started in 1971, which is 49 years ago, as a firefighter for uh, what is now CAL FIRE. And then I went to work for a small municipal department in the Redding, California area, and uh, worked there and at Mercy Hospital as a EMT on life support unit. I moved to Paradise in 1974 to take a job as a firefighter with the Paradise Fire Department. Worked my way up through the ranks over the next 35 years. I ended up as the chief of the department for the last 10 years of my career there and then have continued on as part of the emergency operations center. So I know you used to have like fire seasons. Oregon has fire season now. We've never had fire season before. But we're seeing more and more of our fire season go into the winter. That started happening probably 10 or 15 years ago, where fire season stopped being fire season. When I started 49 years ago, fire season started in June and ended in October, like clockwork. And there was rarely an exception for 35 of those years. I want to say around 2000, 2000 to 2005, our season started running into November and December. We started seeing, you know, that our fire season was getting longer and longer and longer. We no longer really have a fire season. It's year round. We'll have a wet period where we get to slow down, 
but really fire season never ends in most of California. And that's part of climate change. Climate change has had a couple of other effects. One of them is that the climate of Southern California is moving north. Just like in Oregon, the climate of Southern Oregon is moving north. The campfire was all over the news. If you lived in the United States in 2018, you saw news about this fire. Tell me where you were the morning that initial vegetation fire happened. I know it was really early. Yeah, the fire started at around 6.25, I think, and I was home, and Sid really discovered it first. I was still up in the bedroom, and she texted me, where's the fire? Like I would know, right? I'm not tuned in at, you know, in November 8th at 7 in the morning. She goes, look, and there's a column of smoke going across the sky. So I turned on my radio. I carry, I have a scanner, which I just turned off a minute ago to, to stop the chatter. I'm hearing right away traffic that says it's in the Concow area. We have a really strong wind that comes from that direction. And, but we've had a ton of fires, the Concow fire, the Poe fire, the 70 fire, the, I mean, they just go on and on. That fire, that area gets a lot of fires. None of them had ever reached paradise until November 8th, 2018. And so a lot of the early people were being told, oh, the fire's in Concow. But that phenomenon that I described earlier of this column of smoke that was boiling up, there's a cam with time pictures. It shows nothing. And then over 35 minutes, it builds to an entire column that's sheared off by wind. So the condition changed dramatically in 35 minutes. I mean, it just went from being another wildland fire with a potential to being a catastrophic wildfire, literally in a matter of a half an hour. I called the EOC, our, our, our town manager, and they had already opened our emergency operations center because they'd been told that the fire was in Concow and it was burning toward Paradise. But still at that point, fire never burned into Paradise. But the air attack, which happened to be a friend of mine, uh, by the name of Shim Hawkins, the guy in the sky, when I heard him say, the fire is spotted on Sawmill Peak, and I, I actually look, can look out my window to my left and look at Sawmill Peak, and I went, oh crap, this is not good. And I said that to Sid, I said, this is not good. This is different than before. And within a matter of minutes, notifications started going out for evacuation. Uh, but that air attack, uh, Shim advised, you need to evacuate the entire town of Paradise. That's what he said from the sky. And that was a huge alarm bell like never before. And Shim grew up in Paradise. He knew, he knew the potential. In a matter of minutes, it went from there's no fire in Paradise to there's fire all over Paradise. Literally minutes. So your partner has evacuated. She's en route out of town. And she drove through fire multiple times, including the, the famous tunnel of fire down on Lower Skyway. There's a great video of a father singing to his daughter while they're going down through the fire. And she goes, she asks him, are we going to die? He's just calm as can be. He says, no, we're going to be just fine. And then there's a vehicle parked alongside the road. And you can see his, this moment of breaking down is, oh, shit, what are they doing there? And then, you know, because it's going to block him a little bit. And then he gets around them and he goes on and they drive out, out of the fire into the open sky. Well, here's an irony for you. That fire was not, wasn't even from the main fire. It was a completely new fire. So that was, a, that was our day. And that happened in every route, every route out of town had fire. So when I went to work, I'd heard there was a, the first spot fires had occurred within a mile of our home. So I drove down to take a look. Looking back, uh, I stupidly engaged, meaning I, started protecting structures. I grabbed a garden hose. And at the time I thought I had a five acre spot fire. And at one point I backed out away from the fire and looked down the road and saw another home on fire and saw other fire and said, oh crap, this is not a spot fire. This is a whole lot more. And as I drove out of that road, there was fire everywhere. 
So I called into the EOC and said, look, we have fire everywhere. And they go, yeah, we know that. Uh, and I said, I'm going to try to come down to the EOC. And I tried, uh, but I got in that line of cars. And at some point, I was about 30 minutes into being in a line. I said, I'm not doing anybody any good in a line of cars. I'm going to peel off and go back north and see if I can do something better. I'd created a uh, temporary refuge area, which is something worth talking about. We are careful about temporary refuge areas because we don't want people to think, okay, we were put at Kmart before, we'll go to Kmart because Kmart might not be the safest place in a different situation. So these, that's why they're called temporary, meaning they're created on the spot. So we, I created one at an intersection because there was fire all around it and the cars were stopped. So I thought, well, it's better for them to have a place to get out and get into a building. The fire actually ends up burning toward their cars. So I went to the gas station owner at the intersection and said, hey, can you let people into your building? And he said, no problem. He says, I have the keys to a vacant building next door. So let's open it. I talked to some citizens and said, guess what? You're going to be in charge. And so if people get in trouble and the fire comes in, we'll put them in the buildings. But I'm probably going to take off. So the guy comes up to me and says, there's a woman up Skyway in her home, and I'm sure she's still there, and she has no way of getting out. And I said, well, we can't get to her, and these cars, the fire is burning up to these cars. We need to do something about this line. So we, there was a sideways route. I could get them to a shopping center parking lot. I said, let's route them to that parking lot, and they'll be safer there than they are in this line. And I remember walking up to the first car, that we were going to divert. It was a little woman looking very scared. And I said, well, this isn't my, this isn't the car that's going to lead the charge. The next car was some teenagers. And I said, guys, can you drive to Kmart? And they said, yeah, no problem. These cars are going to follow you to Kmart. So you drive to Kmart right now. Quite honestly, I had to drive through fire to get there, but it wasn't near as intense. Uh, and I knew that because I just had driven the route. And we got all of the traffic that was behind that intersection gone. I went back to make sure they were okay. And this guy had two boys in his car. And he says, he asked me, could you talk to these boys and reassure them? So I went over to the car and I said, hey, everything's going to be okay. It's going to be fine. In the end, we ended up putting about 500 cars in that parking lot to shelter in place. And another three or 400 in a church just down the road. The guy says, hey, uh, you know, come go check on the woman now. And so we went up and, and she had three chickens and three cats. And, and I said, you got five minutes to put them in my truck and we leave. And she had them all crated and food prepared. And she threw it all in the back. And, and the guy had to jump in the back because I don't have three seats. And she got in the front with me and I drove them back to that same intersection and let them out. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And it goes on like that all day. People doing that on their own, citizens doing it. Uh, creating safe zones or uh, temporary refuge areas. On that route that I created to get to Kmart, a fire engine drove up and it was a kid who had grown up behind fire station number one from a single mom. And we had kind of adopted him and he ended up being a captain on the engine. This is obviously many, many years later, but he was a little boy that grew up in a little tiny house right behind fire station one that we sort of took under our wing. And he goes, chief, what do you want me to do? And I said, make this route safe just protect this route. And when I went back by that intersection later on, he said, can you put somebody in the back of your car and take them over? Well, this guy with a walker and the woman barely able to walk had walked out of nowhere from their home to this intersection. And I said, well, you know, it's a pickup truck and a car pulled up at that point. We walked up to the window and said, you're taking these people to Kmart, that's where you're going. And loaded them up in their car and off they went. The damage was done in 12 hours, it was done. But the fire went on and threatened other communities, unfortunately. Um, I'm going to say around six in the evening, I realized there was nothing left for me to do. 
I swung out, checked on Feather River Hospital, which had significant damage, but had not completely burned. And uh, a couple schools, and so I could report, drove down to Chico, and then one last insult to injury, and there was that damn fire again. It hit the road just about the time I got down. This is miles below town. And I ended up driving through fire one last time, went into Chico, reported the EOC. Uh, it was a shell shock scene. I mean, you walk up to blank faces and at that point, we decided there was really nothing that left for the emergency operations center to do that night, but we would have plenty to do over the next weeks and months. I ended up being the director, meaning I ran the emergency operations center for the town. The town was burned, so we were we knew right away we were going to go into recovery mode. We had to go through the process of how will we get people back into their homes. And that took from the day of the fire to the day we were letting people back in was over a month because the damage was so bad. And of course, with our case, it was a big toxic burn site. So a lot of health issues, tree hazards, telephone poles, wires down, wires sagging, poles leaning. And so we have a process called repopulation. All of the different utilities and fire department, police department, health department have to approve reentry. We asked or required people to wear protective equipment when they went back and started sifting through their stuff. We actually provided sifting kits, uh, white suits, filter masks, so that they could safely go through because your home is a big toxic pile when it burns. You know, that was a lot of what we managed out of the EOC. And then we began the recovery process, which is filing for FEMA grants, disaster declaration, recovery money. We're, we'll be in recovery projects for 10 years at least. I know at one point there was talk about zone by zone evacuation, and that's how you were going to manage getting a massive amount of residents out of town to safety. But this fire wasn't considered normal circumstances. You would have had more time under normal circumstances. Were you part of the team that created that zone concept? Yeah, I brought that all together. I mean, honestly, I scheduled the first meeting in 1998 of what we call the cooperators, which would be everybody, Red Cross, CHP, our California Transportation Service, Public Works, local Public Works County, Sheriff's Office, Police Department, Fire Department, put all the people in the same room and said, look, we've got to do better. We, we need to plan for an evacuation. We had no plan before that. It evolved over the years that we had actually became a working group. That plan was rewritten probably eight to 10 times since then, including what we've learned after the campfire. The zone concept came up about, I want to say, six years into the process. The way I've characterized that is that 98% of the time, that plan's going to work, and we had a 2% fire. It was extraordinary, and it still stands as an extraordinary fire, even in the face of what's happening with the current fires we've had or fires around us, like fires you've had, as a good example. Picture this, the difference. Picture the fire progressing rapidly toward Oregon City, like it did. Which is my home where I live, but listeners can imagine this in, in their own context. Fire rapidly approaching to wherever wherever you live. Now picture a different scenario. Picture a massive column of fuel burning so intensely that it lifted literally fuel the size of limbs into the air, into the atmosphere, into the, into the smoke cloud. But instead of being able to go up like a normal fire and form a big column that are what they call pyrocumulus clouds, go up straight up and then get up to an elevation where they would cool just like a rain cloud, it getting sheared off by a 60, 70 mile an hour wind and shot sideways like a blowtorch, carrying those large embers. 
So now in Oregon City, rather than having a fire progressing toward you, picture thousands, if not tens of thousands of embers large enough to ignite a fire landing in your neighborhoods, landing in your yard, on your roof. That's what we had. That was the extraordinary nature that, that was different. So another thing that was initiated after the 2008 fires was something called ContraFlow, which is really using a roadway that is normally two-way as one-way. We have a plan for that now, a written plan for one-way evacuation, and it was so used during the campfire evacuation. I mean, virtually every road became a one-way evacuation route. There were virtually no roads out of town that were both directions going out, except the main road that has four lanes, we tried to keep one open for emergency traffic to, to come up. But really, ContraFlow worked. So there's a lesson that we learned in our community from our 2008 fires where we had limited capacity. And that was used also during the uh, evacuation of 180,000 people in 2017, one-way evacuation or ContraFlow. Really common down in the hurricane belt. We used whatever we could from them to build our system. I always like to keep things positive. And so now I want to shift our conversation a bit to being a proactive homeowner. Let's talk about what we can do as far as prevention. I still think that the thing that people don't get the most is what I call the first five feet. But picture if you rained embers onto the first five feet, what could ignite? And it's, it's everything from certain types of plants like junipers, which I'm death on junipers, but there's lots more than junipers or any plant, even one you think of as wet and green, like an azalea, where you have a lot of brown debris underneath it. The brown debris is going to catch on fire because you haven't cleaned it up. Project wood, toys. We have a great video from way back in 1989, poor quality video. But what it shows is these firefighters are defending a home and it has an open underneath carport with a, with a house above. There's embers flying everywhere and they're squirting down with hoses. And then one of them turns around and sees a broom on fire in the garage. The broom's enough to burn the home. I've been on hundreds of inspections over the years uh, of homes where they spent thousands of dollars on defensible space. And I have to point out that little plant there, that pile of wood there, that's gonna burn your home down. So that's what I think people don't get the most. I have another uh, great saying is where the leaves blow, the embers go. It's not just a matter of what you put there permanently, but what gets there. So if you have a windstorm that fires typically occur in, leaves blow and they eddy. You know what an eddy is, right? I mean, it eddies around something and then it puts all these leaves in a corner. You know, and every time you have to clean up, you have to clean out that corner. Well, if the leaves will blow there, so will the embers. And that corner is all it takes on a wood structure for it to burn down. That's all it takes, that pile of leaves that catches on fire. That's what people don't get. And mine is almost all concrete for a reason. It's concrete, brick, block, because all I have to do is rake stuff away from it, and I'm good. And now it's time for questions to ask yourself about your space and your reason. Number one. Have I cleared my roofs and gutters of leaves and repaired loosed or damaged roofing to prevent ember penetration? Think about things that can easily burn, little bits and pieces sticking up that would easily ignite. 
Maybe those should get some attention. Question number two, what do I have stored underneath my deck or my porch? Can it burn? If so, it should be removed. Question number three, do I have damaged or loose window screens or even broken windows? If so, these need to be prepared to prevent embers from accumulating. Question number four, do I have flammable material, not just mulch, leaves, plants, firewood piles, but anything that can burn? Brooms, as Jim mentioned, sitting close to my wall exteriors. Question number five, do I have wooden fencing attached to the house? If it's time to update or change your fencing, consider something non-flammable for your next go-round. Six, along the same lines, could I replace wooden decking and railings with metal or other non-flammable materials? And lastly, number seven, remember Jim's saying, where the leaves blow, the embers go. Clean up the dead leaves and pine needles around your home. All the things neat and tidy. Who do you know that might enjoy this information? It could be the thing that saves their home. I would certainly appreciate you spreading the word about this episode around your community, with your friends and neighbors. One thing you can do today, prepare for a natural disaster or other catastrophe by creating a home inventory. Using a home inventory app can help you document and organize your belongings as well as calculate the total value of your assets. In the event that you need to make a homeowner's or renter's insurance claim, having a current and detailed inventory of your belongings will help make the claims process so much easier and faster. You can use your phone and you can store it in the cloud. No matter if fire hits, your house floods, or a break-in happens, you'll have this video and documentation to assist with insurance claims. Let's go over the dedicated apps available for this if you're interested, but you can also use a spreadsheet. From all the reviews that I've read, Sortly, S-O-R-T-L-Y, seems to be the favorite. It allows you to record an impressive level of detail for each item in your home, such as serial numbers, purchase dates, SKU numbers, warranty expiration dates, and more. You can include up to eight photos of each item to keep a visual inventory and list quantities and prices to calculate the total value of the items in your home. You can transfer and export the items to a CSV file, export to a Dropbox, PDF, or Evernote. For my ultra-organized listeners out there, you'll enjoy this if you're moving. With Sortly, you can even create printable QR labels and stick them to your moving boxes. So you can scan each box to show you a list of what's in that box. Oh, how that idea pleases the obsessive compulsive part of myself. I'll list out all seven inventory apps and their links on our Home Space and Reason Facebook group page for your easy reference. If you haven't joined yet, simply search Facebook, 
for the Home, Space, and Reason group. It should pop up, answer three easy questions to join, and you'll have access to all the good stuff without any work on your part. If you happen to know someone in the market to buy or sell in the greater Metro Portland, Oregon area, kindly send them my way. The finest compliment I could ever receive is the confidence of your referral. Thanks for sitting in on this conversation about creating a home that thrives. Stay safe.